Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host here, Dan Darling, and today I'm joined by one of the leading evangelical thinkers, Oz Guinness. Oz is a prolific writer. He's the author of more than 30 books, including A Free People's Suicide, The Global Public Square, and his latest book, Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. Oz Guinness is also the founder of the Trinity Forum and has been a frequent speaker for audiences around the world, including uh, the British House of Commons and the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, He's just a prolific thinker and writer, one of the most brilliant minds in the evangelical world. It's a real honor to have him on the podcast. Before we begin our conversation with Oz Guinness, I want to tell you about an important new resource at the ERLC we are calling The Weekly. This is a free weekly email newsletter written by our staff that curates the most important news stories and offers some brief uh, reflection and uh, information from a distinctly Christian perspective. Most of us are very busy. Uh, We've got our jobs, we've got our families, we've got just life happening, and it's hard to digest the news as it comes in from all the sources, Facebook and Twitter and social media and and TV and radio. And so this offers just kind of a quick 15-minute read once a week to get up to speed on the important news stories and how to think through them with a Christian worldview. So to sign up for the weekly newsletter, visit my website at danieldarling.com, click on the show notes page on the podcast page, and we will have a link there to the weekly newsletter. But for now, let's join our conversation with Oz Guinness. Well, Dr. Guinness, thank you for joining me here today on the Way Home Podcast. Really appreciate it. A great pleasure for me to be with you. So there's there's so many things I'd, I'd love to talk to you about. Before we get into some of the topics from your new book, Fool's Talk, about Christian persuasion, I'd love to just uh, talk a little bit about the topics of religious liberty that are have been in the news in the last couple of years. Uh, you've been writing about this for a while now, and uh, you have talked about the idea of a civil public square. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, as you know well, the global issue in our world is how do we live with our deep differences? Mm-hmm. And you can see that there are, broadly speaking, two extremes. One is what's called the sacred public square, where some religion or another is either preferred or established. Now, we've got very mild versions of that, like the Church of England in England, or very harsh versions of that, as you can see in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Then the other extreme is what's called the naked public square, where all religion is strictly banished. And again, you've got mild versions of that, say the French laïcité, or uh, the Chinese or North Korean communist expulsion of religion. Now, both of those, if you think of them, do not give justice and freedom for everybody. And so I've been championing what's called a civil public square, where everyone of every faith, or no faith, as they like to say, but they do have a faith, Everyone, based on freedom of conscience, is free to enter and engage public life, but within an understanding of what is just and free for everybody else, too. So a right for a Christian is a right for an atheist or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever. And a right for one is a right for another and a responsibility for both. Now, that agreement has to be taught. And the tragedy in America is that that agreement, which... Tocqueville called the habits of the heart is broken down. And so for nearly 50 years now, you've had an ugly culture warring with these other two extremes fighting it out and religious liberty becoming more and more controversial 
and in my mind, America squandering and throwing away its magnificent heritage. This is a concept, the civil public square, that I think for many Christians is new because uh, we've sort of lived in, in, in a sort of umbrella of protection and Christians have lived in a, in a largely, at least nominally, Christian culture. And so Christians now championing the right for all religions uh, to have access and, and freedom in, in the public square is a new thing. Now, of course, it's Christians that are being in some ways marginalized. And so talk about why Christians should fight for religious liberty, even for people that they don't agree with. So for instance, sometimes you'll get a group that will oppose the building of a mosque in a particular town because they don't want that kind of you know, uh, religion in their town. But talk about how Christians should actually champion the, the liberty of other faiths and why that's important. Well, think back in history. We are the pioneers of religious freedom. The first reference to it in history, Tertullian. The second, Lactantius. And then after the long Catholic centuries, which were a terrible denial of religious freedom at many points, the modern understanding of religious freedom came from great Baptists like Roger Williams, who was the first to argue mm-hmm. for freedom of conscience for everybody, and obviously put that into the Rhode Island Charter. And so it should come very naturally, not only for Christians, but for Baptists, to stand for freedom of conscience for everybody. Now, as you said, we sort of relied, we've flown with the tide, and having a Christian consensus in this country right down to the 1950s. But one of the huge differences from then till now is an explosion of pluralism. Well, how do you respond to it? And that's the challenge. Do we respond in first principle Christian thinking, or do we just react against it and fight for our own good? So, you know, you go back to the 17th century, they would argue, why freedom of conscience for everyone? Well, even God does not, use Roger Williams' term, rape our conscience. He will allow us to, to choose eternity without him, mm. rather than overriding our freedom of conscience. And that's the sort of fearless commitment of principle that Christians used to have. Now, it assumes a lot of things, Dan. It assumes if we get into the public square and they're crazy ideas, we know how to argue with them. And we trust the truth and Christian views of human dignity and life and all sorts of things will prevail. But it means we have to be in the public square with powerful arguments or else the system will work against us. Do you think that one of the reasons that Christians might not be prepared for this kind of new era uh, is that uh, perhaps on the one hand, we, you know, people are not necessarily as steeped in their uh, belief system as they should be and are not prepared to articulate it, number one. And number two, do you think there's a little bit of defensiveness uh, when you see other religions encroach um, on that and people just aren't prepared to make persuasive arguments, right? Well, again, we've rested on our oars, and we've got to have people, Christians, who really understand their faith. They know who they trust, they know why they believe, and they're also able to be persuasive. And of course, that leads to my, my current book, you know, St. Peter says, be always ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And that word reason in 1 Peter 3.15 is actually the word apologia, which is the root meaning of apologetics, a reason defense. And you can see that as public life has grown more secular, and as the private life in America has grown infinitely more diverse, 
we need to be persuasive again and to do so in all the arguments of the different languages that people have. But that's threatening to many Christians. You know, I went, put it like this, Dan. I went to school in England at a school 25 miles from France. And we English are even worse than you Americans at speaking <laughs> French and other European languages. And so often what the English would do, they cross the channel to France, and when they couldn't speak French, they'd just speak English louder and more slowly. <laughs> and you can see many Christians do the equivalent of this country. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got this incredible diversity of languages today, of different religions and worldviews. But instead of trying to be persuasive and Jew to Jews, Gentile to Gentiles, all things to all people, like Paul was, we just talk Christian louder and more slowly. But of course, it's unpersuasive. How do you think evangelism will change in this new kind of growing pluralistic and secular age, different than perhaps a previous generation? Well, you take the great explosion of the Southern Baptist community. You could assume that most people in America, say in the Eisenhower era, were open and sympathetic towards the Christian faith. Billy Graham flourished in those times, Mm -hmm. too. But increasingly, we've got people whose ideas are different, and now you've got a backlash against the Christian faith because of the Christian right. So we've got more people who are hostile and prejudiced and against us. Now, that means you've got to be even more persuasive. And in Scripture, evangelism is ideal for people who are open, interested, and ready for the good news. But for people for whom it's not good news, it's apologetics. In other Mm -hmm. words, a bush-clearing, as the Australians put it, a ground-clearing exercise to clear away the objections and misunderstandings so that people are open and ready for the good news. It is good news to them. And that's what apologetics does. So as we've gone into this new era, we've got to have Christians who are not only good evangelists, but also good apologists as the ground-clearing exercise. It would seem, too, that the nature of our evangelism would change as well, where, as you said, there's a basic Christian consensus. So maybe people weren't all born again or truly regenerated, but perhaps were lapsed Lutherans or altar boy Catholics or grew up Southern Baptists. And so you could kind of skip ahead to the to the few verses in Romans on justification by faith, and people might say, what must I do to be saved? And they would repent right there, where now, you know, in my in my neighborhood in Tennessee, I've got uh, many Christians, but I've also got a Muslim family, I've got uh, a Buddhist family, and so I have no expectation that I'm going to go knock on their door the first time, give them a, a fruit basket, and they're going to say, what must I do to be saved? Or I'll give them a tract, and that will do the thing. So it, will it require now that Christians should do what they sh- should have always been doing, right, and c- kind of building these deep friendships and having these important conversations? No, you put it extremely well. You know, in the social sciences, we say everyone is now everywhere. Mm. In other words, through the media, through travel, through the migration of people, you've never had such an explosive diversity almost everywhere. So the monochrome South and many other parts of the country has gone. Now, one of the uh, effects of that is we can't rely on recipes and formulae. The simple fact is Jesus never spoke to two people the same way. Mm. So we've got to can all our methods, like, say, the four spiritual laws. They're terrific if someone believes in God. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Or maybe even is sort of groping towards the Lord. But to a new atheist or someone opposed to the gospel, that's like a red rag to a bull. 
and we've got to discern where every single person and their hearts really are. And it's a new day, and we've got to go back to a genuinely biblical style of evangelism and apologetics to really make headway. So we've had it too easy for too long, and we're now in a period of grand challenges and grand clarification. But of course, the real understanding of the gospel and apologetics is more than capable for the present hour. So we shouldn't be fearful at all, but go back to something that's richer and deeper than the methods we've been, sadly, using more recently. I think when people hear the word persuasion, they think two things that are I would assume that you would consider wrong. One, I think they hear argument, so I've got to win arguments, so individual arguments over the dinner table or lunch lunchtime where I've got to just got find that perfect salient point to sort of defeat this person in an argument. The second thing I think they hear is when they think persuasion, they think, you know, forcing people, they think sort of, you know, pushing it. And so what what do you mean by the the word persuasion? Well, let's quickly say persuasion is the opposite of coercion. Mm. Coercion is what's forced. Persuasion is not. You're making people free to make a choice. But you're persuading people who are not naturally interested or open or needy and maybe openly opposed. So you take persuasion words and read through the book of Acts. If you cut out every time Paul uses the word persuasion, you'd have a pepper pot. Mm. In other words, the gospel was persuaded by the apostle Paul, but you're persuading people. You're not trying to win arguments, you're trying to win people. Mm. And they've got to make the free decision at the end of the argument, or whatever it is. They've got to make the decision. So you take something like the parables. They're rather like uh, Agatha Christie. You know, Hercule Poirot has three suspects. He doesn't know which is the guilty one. So he puts them through a litmus paper test, and the guilty one shows up. You see the same thing in Shakespeare's Hamlet. And so the parable, Jesus just tells a story. He doesn't expound it or apply it. I'm talking about the scribes. No. But if you watch the crowd, however many were there, you see one group in the crowd clenching their fists, shifting from leg to leg, veins standing out in their forehead. Who's convicted them? Jesus hasn't even mentioned them. They've convicted themselves because the parables were brilliantly subversive, indirect, involving, imaginative, and the scribes and the Pharisees got into it, and they saw themselves. The rest of the crowd were innocent, and they were nonplussed. And that's the sort of example you take, say, Nathan to David. We're out to not win arguments, but to win people. What are some of the, you know, every culture has certain thin places or touch points where people are most open to hearing the Christian story. And so as you look at the culture today, what are some of those opportunities today that might be different than, say, a previous generation? Well, you've always got two approaches to work on, the negative or the positive. The negative approach, like Elijah with the prophets of Baal, Mm -hmm. pressing them out to be true to what they said they believed and they couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. And often you turn the tables on an argument. Every argument cuts both ways. So, say relativism. You press a relativist to be true to his relativism. He or she can't be. Mm-hmm. That's one approach, to press them out to be true to what they say they believe, which we know is not true. At some point, they'll hit their heads against the wall. And you can see even some of those belligerent people today, some of the advocates, say, of the sexual revolution, at the point of overreach, 
they open themselves up. The other approach is actually far less followed, but I've got a chapter in my book. It's called Following the Signals of Transcendence. Whatever people say they believe, there's always something in their experience that their belief doesn't cater to or explain. Mm -hmm. And like a signal, a beep, 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 it, it punctures what they believe or say they believe and points beyond it. You take C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist. What shook his atheism? He was surprised by joy. Mm. He couldn't explain it in terms of pleasure or happiness. And it was a signal, and he followed it more than 10 years, and eventually came to see the answer was in Jesus. And I know many examples of people who, in their experience, have incredible experiences that puncture what they believe, point beyond what they believe, and of course they want to follow them, to fulfill their aspirations, and they come to Jesus. And the, the book has many stories like that. So we can be negative at times, like Elijah, but we can also be positive at times, because as Ecclesiastes says, everybody has, quote, eternity in their hearts. Hmm. Uh, how should pastors and church leaders be equipping and preparing the people of God to live out faithfully in this new era? Well, we've got to teach people solid biblical convictions, get away from the biblical illiteracy we have today. But we also need to be courageous in standing on them, not like Peter denying our Lord at the high priest's house. Mm. But when you've got that, the courage of convictions, you need to train people to be apologetic. For example, we're attacked for being on the wrong side of history, hate-filled and reactionary, all these sort of rude things. It's time for Christians to put the way of Jesus in the most constructive, appealing, positive way we can. So, you know, one of the churches that were evangelical in San Francisco a month or two ago caved in and went the way of gay marriage. Mm. And the pastor actually had the cheek, the outrageous cheek, to say that he thought the Christian views of celibacy were destructive of human flourishing. Well, that's appalling. Mm. And we need Christians, both in their lives and in their arguments, can show the way of Jesus is the most fulfilling and the most constructive way forward for humanity itself. In other words, let's turn from being defensive on the back foot and really carry the arguments forward. We're carrying the way of Jesus, which is the answer for the future of humanity. It seems to me, too, that the, the sort of flimsy um, belief systems of many evangelicals who maybe have not been, you know, uh, trained and catechized, if you will, in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, that kind of faith doesn't seem like it will stand up in, in this age. No, you're right. I mean, I'm asked again and again, how is it that the German Christians would cave in, mm. you know, to the seductions and the coercions of National Socialism and Hitler? And one has to answer very easily if you understand the temper of the times and the state of the church in those times. And you can see the same today. Many Christians do not have an understanding of the faith that could stand against much opposition. And here we are. We look at the Middle East. I grew up in China, where the Christians, of course, went through the most brutal, vicious, systematic persecution. Or we see what's happening, you know, under ISIS in the Middle mm -hmm. East. And here we are in the West in comfort caving in feebly to a denial of Scripture, or whatever it is, because much of the American church doesn't have the grounding in Scripture, or the courage of its convictions, or the ability to persuade, that gives a good answer to some of this stuff. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's such a good word. As you think through where we are in the West, in the culture, one of the things that strikes me about your writing is even though that there's concerns that you have, you really are not an alarmist. You you seem to still radiate kind of joy and optimism. Why is that? <laughs> well, I believe on the one hand, one should be as realistic as we can be, clear-eyed about the, what we face. And some of it's pretty tough. But on the other hand, as followers of Jesus, standing on the gospel, we should always be people of hope, however dark the times. And if we see what the gospel has done, not just changing individuals, but entire cultures, and how when things look really bleak, and then the Lord speaks and acts, and five minutes later, everything's changed. We should be people of hope. No fear. You know the most common refrain in the Scripture, the Old Testament and the New? Have no fear. Mm. And one of the places where Christians are most lacking today is a confident, fear-free approach to all the things that we're facing and all the things we're charged with. This is a great moment. It's a clarifying moment. And uh, the Church will come through it, of course, but the question is, will we, members of the Church today, be those who are found faithful, or will we buckle? Mm. It really seems, too, that uh, eschatology matters more now than it has before. Is that not true? Absolutely. Well, Dr. Guinness, I really appreciate your time and appreciate your work, your contribution to the Church uh, for all these years, and thank you for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. Well, a great privilege for me. Thank you. I want to thank Oz Guinness for that terrific conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by emailing us at wayhome at erlc.com? Or better yet, would you write a review for us on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast player? If you like this conversation and would like to hear other good podcasts with other folks like David Platt or Matt Chandler, Colin Hansen, Molly Hemingway, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, you can do that by going to my website, DanielDarling.com, and clicking on the podcast page. We have them all listed there. Or you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite player. Also, don't forget to sign up for our new email newsletter, The Weekly, by visiting my website, DanielDarling.com, and clicking on the link. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Mm-hmm.